This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I want us to focus on creating the life, the community, the world we want to live in, and it really starts with being intentional and having vision. So for the last several podcasts, I've been talking about this book, Black Fortunes, because it's on our book club list, and we're going to actually have a deeper dive into it. But I've been picking little pieces from this book to kind of illustrate a larger point, and this is the point today. So I want to talk about Hannah Elias, one of the six African-Americans who survived slavery and became a millionaire. And her story is kind of tragic a little bit, but what she was was a woman with intense vision. So after she was demonized and vilified and accused of all kinds of things, because that's what will happen. And Shamari Wills says that that's what all of these millionaires had in common. Not only did they have uh, intestinal fortitude, but they also were heavily demonized and heavily um, criticized. And, And some of them, all of them actually had threats on their lives because how dare you how dare you have the audacity to do better than me? How dare you have the audacity to, to have butlers and maids and beautiful homes and cars and, and have all of the money that you could possibly need? How dare you, Negro, out of slavery, do all of this when I'm eating boiled potatoes every night? Do better. <laughs> should be the mess. That should be the hashtag, right? So after she fled her beautiful mansion uh, overlooking Central Park among the white people, and that was like a goal, you know, she but she she was like, trapped in her home because she didn't want anyone to see her. She just wanted to have the, the wealth uh, living among them, but didn't want them to know. So when they found out, hey, we have a negress living next to us, uh, she set her sights on Harlem. Now, uh, black people had started moving into lower Harlem after they opened a train station on 125th Street in 1905. 1905, so of course, white flight being what it is, they started drawing a line at 130th Street which serves as, as the border between integrated and non-integrated Harlem. So black Harlem was 130th Street and below. A white Harlem was 130th Street and above. So in 1909, white Harlemites lobbied the New York Public Library on 135th Street to ban blacks from using the facility. So they figured out how to uh, segregate and they figured out how to use Jim Crow. This is New York City, y'all. Jim Crow laws. So a black person could not use the New York public library on 135th Street, which I'm sure black people paid taxes in New York, but they couldn't use the library on 135th Street. In 1912, a group of white uh, industrialists, wealthy white industrialists, uh, including uh, Coke, CO, um, excuse me, K-O-C-H, one of the uh, wealthy department store uh, people, forced the eviction of black tenants on 131st Street and 132nd Street. And then they blocked a movie theater from operating on Lenox Avenue near 130th Street. A black movie theater. Okay, so black people had movie theaters, y'all, in Harlem. Uh, but these people had the nerve to ban them because they re- they claimed, and this is how it, it goes, right? There was no, like, law passed. They just decided to draw an imaginary line at 130th Street, and then they systematically went forward to uh, toss black people out of things that they had already owned and built, owned and built, including a movie theater on 130th Street. So uh, Elias, Hannah Elias, heard this, and she forced a strategy. She started buying properties in what was then called White Harlem, above 130th Street. 
and she didn't just go in with her black self and do it. She enlisted a guy named John Nail. John Nail was a real estate agent. Um, uh, he was a real estate agent, and he also had agents who did not look black, but he was black. So John Nail, handsome man, uh, curly brown hair. He would wear these beautiful suits, highly polished shoes, but he had agents and, and people, uh, emissaries, who would go out and, you know, ask for, ask the people if they wanted to sell and sometimes pay them above what uh, the going rate was. And one of the people that he sent out was a pastor. His name was Hatchius C. Bishop. Never heard of the man before, but he was very integral in integrating, or excuse me, making Harlem black. Reverend Hutchius, excuse me, let me do his name properly. Reverend Hutchins C. Bishop. Hutchins C. Bishop, he was the pastor at the St. Philip's Episcopal Church. He uh, was, uh, had very white skin. Actually, they said it was olive-colored skin, blue eyes. He had a straight nose, a square jaw, and straight brown hair, which he would slick back tightly, and he could pass for white. So he descended from free blacks in Baltimore, and he considered his church to be one of them high church. He recruited upper-class black people like Elias and John Nail. And so they hatched this plan that uh, systematically would go and purchase large swaths of land. So in 1906, um, more than thousands of people attended Bishop's, uh, Bishop, uh, Mr. Hutchins, excuse me, Reverend Hutchinson's um, church, and they moved to Harlem. And they moved right in the middle of 135th Street. <laughs> from Hell's Kitchen. They bought a building that for um, Elias put up $600,000. $600,000 in 1906. How many of y'all have $600,000 right now to put on a building? My hand is down. I do not have my hand up. I do not have that right now. In 1906, she had $600,000 to buy a church on 135th Street in what was called White Harlem. And then not only did they purchase the church, uh, it was real easy for him with his blue eyes and his beautiful oratory to go and systematically buy up all of the property in the surrounding areas. And once they had acquired enough property, they started renting and selling it to black people. His first customers came from Brooklyn, Williamsburg to be exact. And he sold them lots for $1,000 to $3,000 to build their homes, which they did. Now, uh, after the draft riots, we, the draft terrorism where white People were just rounding up black folks for no reason because they were mad that they had to go fight in a civil war to free people. And actually, it wasn't even about freedom. It was about the Industrial Revolution and spreading that and getting rid of the wealthy planter cat, uh, class. Dummies. But anyway, um, this was a safe haven this part of Harlem. And between 1911 and 1914, they bought up more than $1.1 million worth of property. Those are in 1911 dollars. That would be approximately $27.6 in today's dollars. And so with the help of Elias and Bishop, uh, John Nail turned the color line at 130. 30th Street and turn Harlem into Harlem, into a black enclave. So there's the Harlem that we know today wouldn't have existed without uh, Elias, John Nail, and this white-looking man named <laughs> Reverend Bishop. And I, I say all this to say... 2020, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. 
ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there with their powerful matching technology. ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire that they came together. So they, they came together, they had the resources, but they also had a plan, and anything is possible. We don't have to sit and, and like, oh, I can't believe they're gentrifying. Well, what's the plan? You know what's valuable. You have uh, a neighborhood that is downtrodden near water, you know, like in Brooklyn, near the promenade. You have a downtrodden neighborhood near the freaking water. You got to know that if y'all don't get it together, somebody's going to come in and do what they did in reverse. We can't complain about gentrification when we're not willing to come together to preserve and build up and grow and put value on things and have a vision for things in our own neighborhoods. Right now, I, I, I can't tell the story enough, but I recently bought property in a neighborhood that was a little sketchy. But I, I came in with my broom and my dustpan and swept every single day the black and mild cigar wrappers. And I got the people from sitting off on the property smoking their weed every night. And if people started making noise after 10 o'clock, I dialed 911. It's a neighborhood that's black. The cops are black. I wasn't worried about anybody being shot or killed by police because it's a community where the police actually live in. As well, I'm saying they come from that community. These are not outsiders. So it's a different, I, you can build in a neighborhood like that. And that's my vision. But I, I wasn't daunted by the trash and the, and the people and the, and the low way in which folks lived. I created a different standard. And I can't tell you, yesterday I was walking the street and smiling because the block in which I purchased, completely clean. It's almost as if the neighborhood understood something's happening here and we got to do better. That and me walking around the street yelling, I can't believe people live like this. I can't believe y'all, and, and going up to the guy, why would you throw that on the ground in the place that you live? That's me. That's me. <laughs> you know, if you know me, you know I'm actually saying stuff to people. And after a while, you're like, uh, maybe I should, why am I throwing trash in a place that I live? I went out and got some flowers, some little cheap flowers from Home Depot and plant, put a planter out on the, on the grass because that looks nice. And it, it immediately establishes, no, that's not a place to throw garbage. That's a place to look at beauty. If you want to do something, yes, it may take a little elbow grease. And it may take a little more time. And it may be frustrating because it is frustrating to come home and see trash in front of my door. It is frustrating to walk the streets and see trash. But I get my giant yellow dustpan that I got from, and it's giant too, in my broom. And I sweep up demonstra demonstratively to the point where the neighbors have joined in across the street. And it's almost as if they're, they're saying, thank you, thank you. I saw a little Chinese lady around the corner, and I say a little Chinese lady because there's a little Chinese enclave, and it's spotless in the midst of this hood. 
Because that little lady gets up every morning and picks, literally hand picks the garbage, goes up and down the street with her hands and picks up garbage. And I said, if she can do that, damn it, or I'm not getting out there with my hands. Y'all already know I'm not touching garbage, but I could sweep up. And, it, and yes, I'm busy. And yes, I have several jobs. But that to me establishes your neighborhood. And then it's the little things, right? I went and got reefs for all of the doors. Now, I don't live here, and some of the places are abandoned. I put reefs on the abandoned doors. Hello? <laughs> yes, because it says that somebody lives here, even if someone doesn't live here. I make sure that the lights are on, you know, on all of the properties. Like the, so the, and they have to be the same color because that also says something. Because, you know, you have lights that are yellow, some that are bright white, some that are off-white. I make sure they're all bright white. I even had to go back to Home Depot and change out the bulbs because I had the yellow bulbs on some of them. Nope. And, it, and yeah, it cost, those bulbs cost a little bit because they're for 25 years, so I know they'll never go out as long as I'm here. But that also establishes something because you can't sit in the darkness and smoke your weed on my stairs now. There's a bright light out there. And little by little, the neighborhood is being transformed, and what I'm also doing is raising the property value on the property that I actually purchased. So I know two years from now, when I come back to appraise these properties, they're going to appraise for way more than what I purchased it for. And guess what happened? My neighbor next door has started beautifying the outside of his, his place. And we have a conversation. And he says hello, and his kids say hello. And now, across the street, the man has come over, spoken. There is a community being built right in front of my eyes. But it started with a vision. Because I said, I can't just buy property in a place and not change the whole entire landscape. And that requires an energy Energy is real, y'all. An energy that says, we are better than this. We are not people of trash and litter. We are not people that smoke weed on people's property. We are people that have dignity, and we are people that have pride in our neighborhood. I got into a fight with an eight-year-old. <laughs> yeah, I know that doesn't sound like me at all. But yeah, like your mother is not giving you home training. You're going to get it here. What you're not going to do is come here with you with you and ring my doorbell and run and stuff why would you do that what is that uh 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 uh, uh yeah why 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 is that fun for you why you're gonna bust your lip one day and i'm probably gonna laugh after while i'm calling 911 in the ambulance but you know the reality is if we don't engage in our neighborhoods and if we don't have a vision for the things that we want to have around us they're not just going to magically appear you have to be purposeful about creating the heaven that you want to live in. And it can happen. And it, it takes a little bit. It, it takes not just vision, a little elbow grease. And sometimes you're going to have to get out there and do more than what you want to do. But I'm looking now a year out, a year later, the street is clean, the neighbors are talking, and there's a sense of pride. And that wouldn't have happened. And I'm not going to just blame myself because people had to pick up their mats and walk. And I enlisted everybody on this street to do the same. And I asked them if you see something, if you could just sweep up, you know, please put your garbage in bags that the, the, the cats and the raccoons can't get into so that the garbage is not strewn all over the street. And don't expect the street cleaners to come clean the streets because they're not going to. We live here. Let's do better. And people have picked up their, their, their charge. And I appreciate it. And it, and it tells me that um, it can happen again. But I'm not the first, second, or last person to do this. Helen Elias, John Platt, John Nail, um, and others created environments in Harlem in the 1900s, early 1900s, when black people had no rights. 
on black people. Very little, very few black people have money, but yet some of them did. And what they did with their money was create the utopia. Today, Harlem is a Mecca. And today, Harlem is being gentrified. And I say all of that to say, what are y'all doing, black Harlemites? <laughs> come on, y'all, come together. Let's reverse this, because apparently it's valuable to somebody. It should have been valuable to you, too. All right. I say thank you for allowing me to express myself. This is my last podcast for a minute. I'm going to be taking this Black Fortunes discussion to YouTube. So follow me at Karen Hunter Show. Don't just follow the YouTube channel. Subscribe to it. And the last Sunday in the month, we're going to start talking about books. Black Fortunes will be one of them. But the first book is The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. So I hope you join me in the book club dis discussion. I'm also going to be doing something really interesting on YouTube with live chats periodically. I think starting next week, I'm going to be live chatting over some of the videos. So the videos are going to be irrelevant. It's going to be about having live conversations about different things, sort of like a safe haven that I'm creating there using their technology. Ooh, ooh yes. Hello. Hey, YouTube. Thank you. Um, but we'll talk about more of that on my radio show, which you can find on Sirius XM, Urban View, Channel 126, where talk empowers and becomes action. Also, follow me on Twitter at Karen Hunter and share this podcast with as many people as you know. Till next time.